We're reading from Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, I'm sorry, let me invite you all to stand. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, And on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above he says, They shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also enters from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Good morning. Thank you, Kevin, for reading Hebrews chapter 4. Please join with me uh, in prayer for a blessing on study of the word this morning. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather, gather in your presence, desiring your presence among us. We lift your name on high, and we exalt this word that you have exalted by listening carefully to every word that proceeds from your mouth. We ask your blessing, Lord, on 
on the endeavor to speak your word. Pray that you would find receptive ears and hearts that would take in your word and benefit by it as your Holy Spirit ministers it to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you might have noticed that this text this morning has verse 11 as an overlapping text. It was included in last week's text. And that's intentional. Because this verse is is both a continuation and a summation of the thoughts developed from chapter 3 onward, really. And verse 11 is also the beginning of a six-verse summary and application of all that has been written so far in this letter to the Hebrews. And this is the text for today's message from the Word of God, verses 11 through 16. But in studying this, I also uh, seem to notice that it's a forward-looking summary, a pivot point, if you will, leading into the rest of the letter. The author acknowledges almost right away in the next chapter that the remainder of the letter contains some more advanced, meaty teachings. And he laments that his hearers have become dull of hearing, having remained spiritual babes accustomed only to milk and not having matured and acquired a hunger for the meat of the word, nourishment that would help them grow strong in the faith. He knew they needed to learn to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, not just favorite verses or themes, meat, not just sweet milk. Now, I know we here uh, do not despise babies, do we? No, we love babies. We love and care for them through their most needy and vulnerable times. They are precious, and we care for them with delight and with a desire and an appropriate expectation that they will grow. If that doesn't happen, we get concerned, don't we? Very much so. We expect that they will mature as designed by their creator God. Don't we gradually change a child's diet with a view to helping them progress in maturity? Because a diet suitable at the beginning of life will not sustain a baby unto maturity. So, could the concern for lack of maturity spoken of in chapter 5 be related to why the author has been speaking the way he has in chapters 3 and 4? He has expressed great concern that they may fall away, following the same pattern of unbelief and disobedience seen in the first generation of Hebrews freed from slavery in Egypt. The writer of this letter to the first century Hebrews recognized that these believers needed to become strong and spiritually mature to really know their God. Fearing Him and loving Him with whole hearts and to feed themselves with the real food of knowing and doing His will. And isn't that true of every generation of believers? 
and of us today? The Bible has always represented the race of life as Christians as a race of endurance. It was Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who said, He who endures to the end shall be saved. There is joy in the journey. We have some songs about that even. There's joy in trials. James exhorts us to count it all joy. But the journey is long and strenuous, sometimes lonely or treacherous. So we must have, to endure to the end, we must have the spiritual maturity and strength and stamina that comes from hearing and assimilating the Word of God, mixing the Word we hear with sincere faith. That's what we find from last week's text. And then standing on His promises through the times of testing that build our faith. And we also need the ongoing exhortation and encouragement from one another, stirring up love and good deeds. We found that as part of of Hebrews chapter 3, and we see it uh, a theme again there in chapter 10, which we will eventually get to, Lord willing. But this, the, the taking in of the Word of God and assimilating, mixing it with sincere faith, and the ongoing exhortation and encouragement from one another, this is the daily diet we must have to keep fighting the good fight of faith, running with endurance the race that is set before us, all the way to the finish line. Now, is that true what I just said? How do we know that? Is that not what we're we're told? We've just been covering this in God's word. No word of God falls to the ground. It's not useless extraneous, none of it. And these necessary things are what the human author of this letter to the Hebrews is being diligent to do for his hearers. This very th- those very things, this daily diet. He's trying to help them, to prod them, spur them on. He's speaking and teaching the word of God to them and exhorting them to stay in the fight of faith Stay in the race to the finish line. And we know that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. So, though the human author is writing this, God has put his stamp upon it. This is my word. So it's really the Holy Spirit himself through this letter to the Hebrews who is lovingly and faithfully ministering the word of God to the people of God that this letter was targeted and us today. The Holy Spirit is coming alongside us in our day with the inspired word of God, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16, and with encouragement and ammunition both through the Holy Spirit's quiet guidance and conviction in the inner man and through words of truth and encouragement spoken by fellow believers 
with whom we are knitted together. So while it is still called today, he is with us and he is still speaking. Leading up to verse 11 of chapter 4, there has been a strong exhortation and pointed warnings to endure in the faith. And then patient teaching that there is a Sabbath rest of faith, a resting, a ceasing from trying to produce and trust in our own works of righteousness, which can never please God, and instead to rest and trust in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. The author is concerned that the foundation of their faith, that it be on solid ground, built only on the solid rock, which is Christ. One of, the, one of his names from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 23.6, the Lord our righteousness. From the very beginning, this was God's plan. He himself would be our righteousness. Now, in these last six verses of chapter 4, Beginning in verse 11, he makes a strong appeal to be diligent to enter that rest of faith, to hold fast our confession of faith, and to come boldly to the throne of grace as we run the race of faith. These appeals can be easily identified because each one includes a let us therefore phrase or similar wording. One is in verse 11. One is in verse 14, and one in verse 16. We will consider each one, but I want to give slightly different word handles to them to sharpen their meanings for us, and perhaps uh, broaden it a little bit. Because as I said before, this, this six-verse summary is also forward-looking. And we see that if we look, take a peep into the next chapter, almost immediately the author is expressing, you can tell from what he says there that he's had this on his mind as he's been writing thus far. So, so this is a, a turning point kind of in the letter. It's right before he makes that turning point and he summarizes this way. So I want to kind of reach out and include some of those concerns. And we can pick up on them in these six verses. So uh, I've just chosen three words trying to represent these. So it's, let us therefore be diligent, determined, and dependent. Perhaps the alliteration will help us to remember. Let us therefore be diligent. Diligent to enter and mature in that rest of faith. I'm sure you noticed that I added the word and mature in to the appeal in verse 11. As we consider verses 11 through 13 in a moment... I hope to show why we should be diligent not just to enter the rest of faith, but to mature, to grow, become strong, bear fruit. That's the point in the mark of maturity. That's the first appeal. And then the second 
is let us therefore be determined. Determined to endure to the end because of the hope of that rest of faith. It is important that our determination to endure is based on the hope of the gospel. Not some other foundation of sand, but on the solid rock. And third, let us therefore be dependent, dependent only on grace and truth in Christ to mature and endure in that faith. One of the dangers in the Christian life is to start on one foundation and shift to another. You might recall uh, Paul's uh, consternation in strong language in the Galatian letter, amazed that they would so quickly get off the foundation. He considered it a severe problem, an imminent danger for them. Full dependence on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ every day. That is what our lives need to be about. That dependence is not contrary to our our diligence and determination to mature. Those are not against one another. In fact, we must be dependent on the grace and truth in Christ in order to mature with real maturity, real strength, real endurance. So as we look at each of these appeals from the text, I want to encourage each one here in this room today to consider the Holy Spirit's concern for each one of us, that we enter the rest of faith in Christ, that we mature in Christ, and that we endure to the end, all the while anchored in Christ alone, daily trusting in and receiving his grace and living by the power of his Spirit. So the first appeal, let us therefore be diligent to enter and mature in that rest of faith, And this is with the, we're going to take the uh, three verses, 11 through 13. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So verse 11, the the word that really would stick out to us is diligent. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. And several other words, dictionary definitions that we could bring in, but one that is especially uh, significant, I think, that you know, sometimes you look at a, a list of definitions, slight nuances between things. But as I looked at this one, uh, there was a common element with all those nuances. Make haste. 
very, very uh, strong uh, thought there. So diligent, zealous, earnest, make every effort. Some translations will use that phrase to do the utmost. But all of them mixed with make haste without delay. That's the call for this word. It always includes that element. So make haste to earnestly, zealously enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Hebrews 4.1, just the first verse in this same chapter, says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So in talking about the same subject and basically the same kind of exhortation, we have brought in there the element of fear, lest anyone seem to have come short of it. And then in this verse 11, lest anyone fall according to the same example or pattern of disobedience. So we have this verse 11, let us therefore, looking backward then, you know, the therefore is we, we look back and see that what's been talked about, in light of what's just been talked about, therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. But then note verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. So there's a dependency there. What he's put forward in verse 11, he's then offering this, this statement in verse 12 as being, there's a dependency there. In verse 12, it may be the, the most intense scripture describing the nature and work of the written word of God in the Bible. And it deserves a bit more attention. Especially interesting is, though all the translations will say something very similar there, and grammatically the way that we instruct a sentence for the preposition for the word of God. So there's, that's the connection to verse 11. And yet, and this is something that I, I believe it was just last week that Steve shared about this, that in, in, in the Greek at least, there's a freedom to move some words around. And it's very important what is, what is put right up front. And that's what we have here. And, and it just really loads the meaning because it begins with the word living. So if you look at the text, it actually says living for the word of God and active. It's very pertly picked it up and stuck it right in the front. So that is, is intended to get attention. And it's something we would not want to miss. That also could and probably should generate lots of questions. Why? Why is living 
emphasized this way. Uh, we can really go off on several uh, questions. I'm just going to put forward a couple representative. How did the scriptures become the living word of God? When did the scriptures become the living word of God? And so on. I, I put those forward not to answer them and make it a part of this message, other than to say, I think there's some more important uh, questions to ask. Uh, one would be the first one, why is living emphasized this way? But maybe even more foundational than that, than that is, since this seems to say something about the nature of the scriptures, what about the nature of the scriptures? Especially in regard to the word of God being living. We regard these written scriptures to be the word of God. And this text tells us this is the living word of God. Well, I I think you know that this is made of paper, ink, and leather. Okay, the, the, the materials are not living. We can learn something from this. The word of God is living. The materials are not. So this tells us something. This leads us in the right direction of understanding. And we can consider too that in the scriptures, the revealed word of God, which reveals God. One point to make here is that God is very intentional in revealing himself in the scriptures. But God was revealing himself before these began to be written. Moses wrote the first five books. So a lot had already happened, right? And we find within those first five books many instances of the Lord showing up. Not just in the garden before the fall, but different times. Appeared to Abraham. Appeared to his descendants. The people of God that he was bringing along God was constantly revealing himself to them. God is a God who communicates. How do we communicate? Primarily. Words. That's really it's kind of how we are limited, right? That's just the, we're, we're made that way. That's, that's our primary very much primary way of communicating. We have different languages around the world, but it's still in one form or another, it's it's our, our mode of communication. God is very different than us, and he does not have limitations other than he cannot be have a part with evil because of his nature. There's things that he cannot do for that reason. But he is not limited. But he has limited, in a sense, he has limited his revelation to us of himself primarily here. I want to put forward a point is that God, the a holy God, when he speaks 
it's not like us speaking. When we speak, it's audio waves, you know, and it goes out there and dissipates, right? In a few seconds or a few milliseconds, depending on the environment, it's gone. Nothing that comes out of God's mouth (laughs) is dead or dies. We have his promise that his word does not return to him empty. It accomplishes whatever he sent it for. And we are to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So I think it's important for us to, to, to uh, not to have a, a heady, intricate kind of knowledge because De- Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, and I need to look it up because I only made some quick notes. It's a good verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. So there are many secret things that only belong to God. They're they're not in here. But everything that's in here is intended for us. And and he has revealed himself in his word. And part of that is revealing Christ who would come and would be the perfect representation. I want to read a few verses uh, three different places, just one or two verses from some beginnings. Of course, the first one would be Genesis. Verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in John 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And in each one of these, this is the word logos in Greek which I think we're familiar with. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And I want us to see these together. Genesis 1, John 1. And then, interestingly, Hebrews 1. The first two verses there. And just kind of let these uh, sit before our our mind's eye together. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the prophets, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, the Word, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world's. So you can see the, the, uh, the overlap there. The God who made the world. Made the world through the Son. Nothing was made that wasn't made through Him. 
and he has spoken through him. So the scriptures point to God. And God, here in Hebrews 1, points to the scriptures. When God revealed himself to man through the scriptures, the scriptures could not help but be holy and living and powerful. It's his word. So let us be clear on the things that we need to be clear on, the things that he has revealed in his word. These are the things that he wants us to know. Speculation beyond that accomplishes nothing positive. Let our time be given to hearing his word and obeying. There's a scripture in in Revelation 1, another beginning scripture, that that actually helps to, to see how you get a, you start to get an idea of how God thinks in terms of revealing himself, or at least this in this example. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God. And to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written, for the time is near. So, again, I just share that as an an example that is is in the word for us to learn of of how much and, and some of the ways in which God communicates. And he considers, as he has passed it on, And it gets down to John, his servant, who bore witness to the word of God. Nothing is lost when God sets about to communicate his word. It happens. Even though man can sometimes get his fingerprints on it, God is not threatened by that. His word comes through. And one of the last things that Jesus says in Revelation, so it's the last, uh, second to the last red letter verse. This is chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of these things in the churches. And then he says about himself, I am the root and offspring of David. God is holy. He is so different than us. If you think about those words, I am the root and the offspring of David. That's, I'm the root and the offspring. He, he invades <laughs> our world and he remains himself and his word gets through. He's the Alpha and the Omega and regarding his covenant people and his promise through David, the root and the offspring. 
God is awesome in power and majesty and holy. And because he is awesome and holy, because he is the everlasting God, the ever-living one, every word that proceeds out of his mouth is living and powerful and holy. And as Jesus said in response to Satan when he was tempted in the wilderness, which is also connected to this text, he was tempted. And he said, Jesus, the word of God. But at this point, now, both fully God and fully man, he says, it is written. Who wrote it? Through whom was it written? He's speaking. And yet as a man, he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is amazing. That is our perfect forerunner. Such a response is one of the things that qualifies him to die as a sinless sacrifice for us, taking our sins upon him. A humble but immediate. He made haste to speak that. It's amazing. The Son of God, the very Word of God, spoken in John 1, who was with God in the beginning, and who was God, through whom the worlds were spoken into existence out of nothing, and through whom and by whom man was created after the Godhead's own image. This one then humbly accepted the human body that the Father prepared for him, and then further accepted the will of his Father that he offered on the cross as the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. Saying, self, as recorded in Hebrews chapter 10, a body you have prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus of Nazareth, fully God and fully man, the ever-living one in frail human flesh, the very source of the living words of God, humbly received them from the word that 40th day in the wilderness as the source and necessary sustenance of his earthly life as an obedient son. Hebrews chapter 5 says, Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. He indeed is our forerunner and has left us a perfect example to follow. So we dwelled on that particular element of verse 12 for a little while. I thought it very important that we, that we do so. As I mentioned, there's really not another verse quite like it. And it goes on. Living and powerful is the word of God. And sharper than any two-edged sword. 
There's actually a picture of this in Revelation 1. Is Jesus is revealing himself to John. <clears throat> and at one point, there's a voice like a trumpet blast behind him. And in verse 12, he turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And when he turned, I'm just going to point out a couple of things. You saw several things, but a couple of things. Eyes like a flame of fire. And out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. This word of God comes out the mouth of the word of God, the son of God. which is why we need to tremble at it. And it's a sharp sword. It's not a blunt instrument. It cuts, but it cuts cleanly and does his bidding. And so it pierces even to the division of soul and spirit. Who can do that in themselves? Who can figure out themselves something that's when there's some sort of deep you know, turmoil inside? Man knows not his own heart. God does. In fact, to God, everything is laid bare. You find in verse 13. But the word pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And that word there, discerner, is really judge. The word judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I want to read some from uh, Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is an amazing psalm where the first half is talking about the heavens that declare the glory of God and kind of focuses in on the sun crossing the arc of the sky like a bridegroom coming out of his chambers. And, and the last line there is, <clears throat> it's talking about it rising from one end of heaven and a circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Even though it's a, it, it, there's many shortcomings, perhaps, as an analogy to God, <laughs> who is holy, so different. And yet there is that element. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing hidden from God. There's nothing hidden from the heat that he would apply. There's nothing hidden from the light that he would shine. Because indeed, if we look at verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And isn't that what is at issue here in this passage, in this first appeal, that they enter his rest, that they enter the Lord's Sabbath rest of faith. 
There's some perhaps here that have known about the Lord and been hanging around, but have not entered. The writer is concerned about this. And the law of the Lord, that he's endeavoring to speak the word of God here, is perfect converting the soul. It makes wise the simple. Rejoices the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. When the Lord, through his word, judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is true and righteous. It is good. That brings good. Remember that from James 1, everything that comes from God is always and only good. He wants us to have that confidence in him. To open our lives to his word and to let him. In this case, as the writer is beginning here, to let, to let this word pierce, cut and lay bare the things that need to be so that they can wake up and make haste to enter his rest. At this point, when looking at verses 11 through 13, I want to point out that there's, and you, you may have noticed that, that there's, it, there's like a change you know, when you, you get through 11, 12, and 13. And then for 14, 15, and 16, it, 14 begins with seeing then. And that's kind of the same, along the same lines of wording of, you know, let us therefore, because he's going to say, let us hold fast our confession, seeing that we have a great high priest. Let us hold fast our confession. But the the passage kind of turns here and is is heading in the direction of now the rest of the book. And where we'll find out here in a few weeks what he has to say in chapter 5 is is difficult and very pointed. And that's I shared earlier about remaining on milk when we need to have grown strong acquired a taste and the strength from meat of the word. And so I, I want us to see that there is, there is a, a change here and we're changing from uh, and I'm just going to this kind of more stark contrast I'm going to call it changing from the, the fear of being diligent to enter the rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience as the Israelites before. The fear of that, a a, a right fear. Two, we're moving into some glorious truths that would would bring us to to be amazed at and rejoice in and love God who has become our Savior, Christ, our High Priest. So I just want to point out at this point that these two, fear and love, when the fear is the right fear, a, 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 right, a righteous, reverent, awestruck fear of the holy God. As Jesus said, do not fear man who can just kill the body, but fear God, who after he's killed the body, 
what he can do will also cast a soul into hell. We ought to fear. Jesus taught that himself. But did he not also teach that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And we're looking in 14, 15, 16 about some things that are something to rejoice in. Some, some more reasons to love God. So we're both to fear God, to tremble at his word, to regard him as holy and awesome as he's revealed himself in his word. We're also to love God, delight in his word, and regard him as he is, good and compassionate as he has revealed himself to be. Also, on the fear side, he's the just one with penetrating eyes of fire, but he's also the justifier. Remember that wonderful verse in Romans? He is just and he is the justifier. He satisfied his justice, but he did it at his own expense and justified us. So on the one hand, penetrating eyes of fire, and on the other hand, nail-pierced hands outstretched. It's actually a wonderful combination. And I want to read this summary of the new covenant that was to come. This was a verse uh, shared, you might recall, in, when we watched the video of John Piper uh, toward the first of the year. I think these would be verses to never let go from our, our hearts. Verses 38 through 41. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good. But I will... That's what he does. His desire is to do them good. And what does he do? But I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, and I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. An awesome God, a loving God. And is that also connected to the nature of our salvation? The gospel message is not good news unless you know what the bad news is. And we need to fear God and love Him. But because of what He has done, we fear Him because He's holy. We continue to fear Him because He's holy. But after we've come to Him, we no longer fear judgment. Christ has already suffered it for us. And so, the fear that we have of God is not one of cowering, waiting for impending judgment, but amazement at an awesome God and and joy that he has loved us with an everlasting love and has put the fear of him in our hearts so that we will not depart from him. 
we have so much reason to love him. And this is also related to uh, the last verse that we're going to be getting to here in a little bit. But I want to share these lines that came to me from the song. Or the song. <clears throat> Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. So we've been looking really under the category of uh, diligent to enter his rest. But now, diligent to become mature in the faith. Because the same passage we've been looking at, 11 through 13, and especially verse 12. It also has to do with our maturity. At first, awakening the soul to the dangers, the bad news of the gospel. The word of God pierces, lays bare, and we see our true condition before God. But the word continues to do this kind of work in the believer for maturity. The same power and, and, and intensity and purity. God continues to do that. We ought to love him for it. And I found myself several times here, and I'm doing it again, to, to, to look forward in Hebrews because there's so much here in regard to these same, these same thoughts. A couple of verses in chapter 6. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. I'd like to point back to what's called here to be diligent to enter the rest. Let us show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish. Which would kind of be the opposite of making haste. Right? Holding back. Just kind of sitting. Show the same diligence that is called for when God shows a sinner their true condition. Show the same diligence that is called for there to press in and press on to full assurance of hope until the end. Do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Of course, we'll get a list in Hebrews 11 there later. And then, so let us be diligent to enter the rest and diligent to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So having entered God's rest of faith, the word of God helps us on our road to maturity. By the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the living and powerful word now cuts and lays bare deep-seated attitudes Patterns of wrong thinking that are unlike Christ. There are many hidden things that we do not even realize are there until the Lord brings the heat of trials and the light of his word to our souls. Without the living and powerful word of God, we would be deceived. Sin is deceitful. 
We're warned about that in Hebrews. Also in James. James 1, it says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. As we continue to take in the word of God and walk in obedience to what we hear, we are changed from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, By the Spirit of the Lord, as we behold in the mirror of God's word, the glory of Christ. So, covered both the entering the rest and becoming mature in that rest of faith. And now we look at the second appeal. Let us therefore be determined to endure to the end because of the hope of that rest of faith. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Appreciate what Steve shared earlier, the meditation for the Lord's Supper. Those wonderful aspects of our great high priest. Son of God, fully God. Son of man, fully man. He was able to be the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. In Hebrews 3 verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. That's a bit of what we're doing today. Steve did this earlier. We're dwelling on it a little more. Because the verse here says, seeing then that we have a great high priest. Let us hold fast our confession. So the holding fast of our confession is based on seeing that we have a great high priest. We need to know. And not just in a cursory way, but this is worthy of meditation, frequent consideration. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews 7 gets in the chapter, gets into the fact that this priesthood is forever. That's a good thing. Jesus, our high priest, sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us until there's a, it's time for him to return and everything changes. He will always be interceding for us. Ever lives to make intercession for us, the Bible says. That's a good thing. And in Hebrews 8, it leads with having talked about this in chapter 7. He says, Now, this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And that's what in Hebrews 4 14, that verse wants us to consider. 
We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's now seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. First John says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also the whole world. This is the confession, part of the confession in which we hold fast and rejoice in. This is not a holding fast where we're desperately clinging and, you know, it's a ride we can hardly hang on and gritting our teeth. And No, this is a hold fast with confidence. Hebrews 3.6 says, But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast with the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope for him to the end. We, we have a hope. It's a rejoicing hope. And we can be confident. We need to hold on to that confidence. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, this is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. It's a promise. Hold on to that with confidence. The word of God is true. And so then we look at the third appeal, which is in verse 15 and 16. Let us therefore be dependent on only grace and truth in Christ to mature and endure in that rest of faith. As I said earlier, I'm granting that I've expanded this a bit. Uh, than, than just the one verse drawing from what precedes and follows. But we have abundant testimony in the word about the life that we have in Christ it is the, the, the same foundation of our life in him. It's the same foundation we're to stay on, anchored in Christ. That never changes. It's not supposed to ever change. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is a way to come boldly before the throne of grace uh, in time of need, where it actually, the way it would work out is we never show up there until we're really desperate. <laughs> we're in deep trouble. Oh, maybe I ought to pray. Well, that's probably not what's intended here, I suspect. The throne of grace is a good place to be. A lot. The high priest we have is sympathetic to our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin yet without sin that made it possible for him to be our great high priest the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and then to intercede for us but being fully God and fully man he does know what it was like 
when he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, uh, he wasn't less hungry than you or I would be. He wasn't less tempted to use his power independent of the Father to get some bread. Now, we couldn't have we wouldn't be tempted to do that because we couldn't do that. But in terms of the bread, the hunger, absolutely. He knows what it's like. And so every temptation, he knows the weakness, the human frailty, yet without sin. That's worth just continuing to keep in our, our consciousness It's part of that confession that we are to hold fast with confidence. Jesus, our Savior, who brings to us birth, new life in him, and and who is our high priest who makes intercession for us, is also a high priest who is our forerunner, who has not only tasted death for us, but has also experienced human weakness and temptation, yet without sin. John 1, 16 and 17. And recall that this that chapter, John 1, is a really special revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God. And contrasting Moses, the law and Moses here. Of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. How we ought to thank God for his grace. The grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ. The truth of his word that sometimes hurts, sometimes lays bare, is for our good. And he gives us the grace to respond and have the good become good for us that he intends. We need both. And he offers both. It's available. The truth of his word ministered to us by his spirit and then he offers the grace that we need to implement it, whether it be repentance, making haste to obey something in his word that we had not seen before. He helps us in our needs. And this, this new covenant where God puts the fear in our hearts that we might not stray from him and sets his love upon us and rejoices over us, speaks his truth to us in love. He's the first one who does that, you know. And gives us the grace. This is the new and living way he talks about in chapter 10 by which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. So then, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another 
in order to stir up love and good works. This life in him is based on the spirit who gives life. In contrast, the law, Moses, the letter kills. This is in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul is talking about the basis for his ministry according to the New Covenant. And he's contrasting. For the letter kills, the spirit gives life. So I'd just like to make some, some summary statements and, and then uh, pray a prayer from the word that Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. I'd like to pray that for us. But just to summarize, God wants us to know Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, in all his grace and glory, and to enter into his rest, trusting completely in his finished work of salvation and righteousness. He wants us to know his will for us and to know that he has taken it upon himself to bring us to maturity. As we are diligent, making haste, to hear and obey his word while resting in his finished work. God wants us to endure to the end, yes, but he wants us to, to spiritually thrive while getting there. He's taken it upon himself to do that, to look out for us for good. But he hasn't made us robots. We need to respond to him. He's done the heavy lifting. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Sufficient grace is available for the asking. Come before his throne of grace. And it's from a position of resting in his finished work. That's why it's available to us. Because he has given us his righteousness. While we continue to experience what we experience here, We all stumble in many ways, as James says, right? But we can continue, even in that, when, when we're endeavoring to walk with him and resting in his finished work. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life sets us free from the law of sin and death. Further in Romans 8, my favorite verse is verse 32. He was not held back his own son. How will we not continue to graciously give us all things? God wants us to learn to endure and be strengthened through trials by coming to him for his grace in every trial and proving to ourselves and also to our fellow believers and a watching world that his grace truly is sufficient. And he wants us to learn to work hard. He wants us to work hard while resting in his finished work. We must never confuse our works, our good deeds that he's created us for, for us in, in Christ Jesus 
Ephesians 2. We never want to confuse that, the fact that he has, he has given us life while we were dead in trespasses and in his grace through faith settles it. So he wants us to learn to work hard, energized by the resurrection power of Christ while never leaving the sure foundation of the rest of faith in Christ. So now, <clears throat> let me pray for us through Ephesians 3, verse 16 through 21. <clears throat> I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen us with power through his spirit and our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that we would be rooted and established in love and have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.